0: If you want to safeguard your data, right? If you want to protect it from rogue employees, criminal actors, you got to know where it is because, you know, your data is not like a Klingon warbird. It doesn't have a cloaking device. It, just because you don't know where it is, doesn't mean a bad person can't figure out where it is.
1: Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com.
2: Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today I am welcoming Dimitri Sirota to the show. Dimitri, I'd love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your work and we'll get diving in answering some good questions. Thank you, lecture. So, hello, everybody. My name is Dimitri Sirota. I'm the CEO of a company called Big ID,
0: which I started about uh, 2016 with a co founder in Israel. We're a little bit over 500 people. We've been selling software since about 2018, focused on helping organizations better know their data in terms of what's sensitive, what's regulated, what's valuable. We have customers around the world. We are headquartered technically in, in New York, but we have staff on uh, six of the seven continents. And customers on six of the seven continents as well. And again, we tie into this whole kind of thesis around data is the currency of the new digital enterprise, and you need to secure it, you need to make sure that you're compliant with these new data regulations. And then in this advent of new AI age, how do you find the data that you're going to
2: use for for your AI? Where's the good stuff? The Glenn Geary, Glenn Ross data. <laughs> nice, nice. I love the reference. That's interesting. I gosh, there's a lot of talk to talk about there. And I want to get into startup journey and I'm big into to that stuff, but let's sit in that sort of data and security and classification and just knowing what you're up against as a, an enterprise. Now, that any enterprise just generates an outrageous amount of data, right? And it all goes in somewhere. And we used to call this big data and we used I don't know and then there was a little bit of machine learning and there was all the things there now it's AI. The reality is that companies generate data. You need to understand it. You need to keep it safe. It's like this is just a monumental challenge that we make data faster than we ever had, ever have before. I think what is like ninety percent of all the information ever has been generated in the last two years or something. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that.
0: So look, I think the pace of data generation has expanded. I don't know if it's exactly exponential or geometrical, but, it, but it's growing rapidly. And part of that is just, I think the advent of the cloud. Part of that is that we moved almost completely online, right? I still remember in 2001, 2002, e-commerce seemed like a newfangled thing. And that was really our only kind of interaction. But look at us now, here we are doing a podcast over digitally. I pay all my bills digitally my banks don't let send me letters anymore. They interact with me digitally. I raise money for my company. Certainly during COVID digitally, I I didn't meet some of the people that gave us money in person. And I think we've shifted from just a small part of our life that was online, maybe mail, to basically everything, whether it's TikTok, whether it's how we interact with other businesses, with other software developers. Look at Big ID. We have I think staff, and now probably about 50, 60 cities around the world. My co-founder is seven hours time difference from me. And so again, because of this kind of digitization, is online. And every time we interact, every time you and I talk, a bit and bite get generated, right? Like an angel gets its wing and that gets stored somewhere on the internet. And while this may not be as sensitive or worrisome, The reality is so much of the data we generate, whether it's our W-2s, whether it's our employee forms, uh, whether it's a new schematic that I built for for an aeroplane, some of that is sensitive, right? And some of that is valuable, right? My contract, uh, this is the end of the quarter, my contract with a new customer. Those are high value things. And I think what's happened is a lot of the tooling that helps organizations figure out where's that high value data that I have. To borrow a metaphor, is from the era of Galileo, looking at with his kind of hand built telescope at Jupiter, being amazed by seeing this thing, this object. Maybe in the distance—I I don't know if he saw Saturn or not. The world has changed, and so what we introduced is—I'd like to describe as a world changing technology—in the sense that we help organizations know their data, right? If you want to get value from your data, you got to know where the high value data is. If you want to comply with various regulations, whether they're privacy or HIPAA for healthcare or PCI for payment card data, you got to know where the data is. If you want to safeguard your data, right? If you want to protect it from rogue employees, criminal actors, you got to know where it is because you know your data is not like a Klingon warbird. It doesn't have a cloaking device. It, just because you don't know where it is, doesn't mean a bad person can't figure out where it is. And so part of the genesis and the big idea of Big ID is knowing your data is the first step to not just extracting value, whether it's for analytics or AI, but it's also the first step in being able to ensure that you could safeguard that data, ensure its integrity, protected from nefarious actors, and help regulators know that you're compliant with a privacy payment card, whatever that is. And so that's kind of our thesis. And I think the, the technologies, those Galileo era technologies, maybe Copernicus, maybe a little bit later, that were developed at the very dawn of the internet are probably not the same technologies you want to use today in a more AI driven cloud native world.
2: This is a crude example, but I know from a compliance standpoint, I think about like we run, I don't know, let's say we run businesses or startups on... Google workspace and periodically I'll get emails and say, Hey, this spreadsheet looks like it maybe has a PII in it and it's shared with an external source. That's like, it's trying to catalog all kinds of stuff based on some kind of recognition. And I can imagine that when you're not a startup with six seats or something that you're talking about thousands and thousands of seats and endpoints and edge computing and people at home. And I mean, it just like becomes this massively complex issue of where the hell does that even live?
0: Yeah, and it doesn't like, I think, again, if you go back to that dawn of time that I mentioned, and maybe Galileo is the wrong metaphor, but early, maybe 19th century is a better. Marie Curie, maybe she's a better metaphor, she period. But you're dealing with kind of a world that in you know in the late 90s, early 2000s, was surprised of a SQL server from Oracle, a mainframe from IBM, an exchange server for Microsoft. It was a very simple kind of data environment. You fast forward to today, there are thousands of different places you have data, right? They could be in Office 365. They could be in SharePoint. They could be in Teams. It could be in Slack. They could be in code repositories like a, a GitHub or a GitLab or a Bitbucket. They could be in a Salesforce and Salesforce is of the CRM. There's the marketing cloud. There's the commerce cloud. It could be in Workday. Again, lots and lots of places, thousands. It could be in a MongoDB. Even a MongoDB, is it in the graph database or is it in the document database? And so data has smeared, permeated so many different places. And now people talk about vector databases for AI. It's everywhere. And knowing that data, not only as it gets created or shared, but also just being able to track it has become a bigger and bigger problem, especially as I've departed my data center. I think there was a time when enterprises had this false sense of security because they knew they had a security guard at the door at their data center. They knew they maybe had a Palo Alto firewall at the the perimeter or a checkpoint, and they felt pretty good. I didn't need to know exactly what was inside because I knew it was
2: in New Jersey. When somebody would ask me, where's your data? I would tell them it's in New Jersey. As somebody from New Jersey, I could tell you that's probably not the best metaphor for safety, but whatever. I'd probably say with
0: an accent. It's It's New Jersey. Jersey. (laughs) And that was good enough. But now that the data is smeared like a fine cream cheese on a New York bagel all over in thousands of different places, and I've got to pick through it, and I've got to comply with all these crazy regulations, some made by the Europeans, some made by the Californians. And figure out what data belongs to Dimitri, or what data is a new chip design that I, I got to make sure it doesn't leave the US, or what data is a credit card, because credit cards to be stole, stored in a thousand different ways in a 10,000 different places. It gets really hard. And so we had to start again, starting something that was cloud native, starting a way that accommodated all these different places, these kind of various cream cheeses and bagels that you could support and be able to pick out not only what kind of data, who it belongs to, where it's been, where it's going, what is valuable about it. Is it a patent? Is it a contract? Is
2: it an employee form? Is it a mortgage application? And so that was the genesis of Big Idea. Big Idea. That's it's just a tiny little challenge. So now that you nailed that, no, I get it. That's enormous. And I guess I'm thinking in my rudimentary knowledge of data schemes and classifications and such, we would have, you need to have some sense of a, like a metadata or classification or something labeling, like this is data of this certain type and here are all the things we know about it. So it's almost like a giant database of all your data. Which I imagine itself is massive data, but it just seems like it's this like recursive nightmare of a problem. Like, how do you even begin to take that apart?
1: Yeah. Well, look,
0: you do use machine learning AI, right? Look, the reality is, I think I would have more shells and more things on my shelves if everybody used Big ID. They don't. Many do, but, but not everyone. And the reality is, what you just described in terms of a poor human operator. A Brian, your producer needs to go and look into the data and say, you know what? I'm going to take a look at that. And that sure looks a lot like email or, you know what? I think that's a chip design. That is still how it happens. The problem is that is a losing proposition. There are not enough people skilled in the art of looking at data to be able to make sense of describing what is valuable and describing what is risky. There just isn't. Whether you call them a data stewards or a data analyst, the world doesn't have enough of these people, enough programs to teach them. And the data is just outpacing their ability to process it, right? And this is where you need machine learning, where you need AI, where you need technologies that could bypass that old world of having humans do everything manually and do things automatically. and Look, we're approaching that inflection. And to some degree, our competition is really that inertia from doing things manually. But what's happening now in the market, to your point, is they can't keep up. So they're focusing on less and less and less data. And at some point, when you're under 1% of your data environment, it becomes useless. Because at the end of the day, you want to have a 360 degree picture of your information, right? Just if you're doing data personalization and marketing, you want about 360 degree uh, picture of your customer, how they've interacted with you. You need that for your data. And again, that's where companies like Big ID come in, because that's what we do. We use automation, machine learning, AI techniques to make
2: sense of that data at scale. The picture you just described feels to me like you can sort of Ultimately, fingerprint a particular type of data that we just like we can now look at it, or the machine can look at it because it's beyond human comprehension, and kind of go, "Oh, that's a video file. It's about this, and it has a reference to this plan or something of that nature." Like to really draw out the context of what matters and what doesn't. How in the hell do you sell such a thing? It's so freaking complex, and it, and it's like a it, it, an extra solution on top of the bazillions of dollars that people are you know spending on technology anyway. And my guess is that every solution kind of says they do part of this. So you're a point solution that goes with everything else. like this these are hard problems that I think a lot of people go through,
0: look, obviously, markets evolve. And I think when you start into your podcast it's really geared to kind of business leaders, One thing you find in technology is you anticipate a market, right? You don't start a business typically when the market exists. You typically are making a wager that the market is going to, there's a new market, what sometimes people refer to as a blue ocean, something will appear. Or conversely, you're saying that something is going to change about the way I do things, right? For instance, Snowflake, which some of your audience will be familiar with, believe that just like Salesforce replaced, PeopleSoft. Or sorry, or Siebel for CRM. Cloud is going to change everything. So why am I going to do uh, data warehousing? prem? I'll go to the cloud. In a similar way, we bet that in the future, data was going to be a bigger problem. Now, when we started, we did have a tailwind. There was new regulations that said, thou shalt, right? Almost like a 10 commandments that if you don't do this, you're going to get a penalty. And those regulations were typically around privacy. So 2018 GDPR came out In 2020, California's version of GDPR, CCPA came out. At today I think there's 160 of these laws, I think something like eight in the U.S. and more overseas internationally. And they created a tailwind, right? Just like you're a sailor, those are great if you're trying to get across the bay. They said, look, you got to do this. You got to tell customers what data you have on them. It's not an option. You got to do it. And you can't do it with the technology that existed before. So we took advantage of that tailwind, right? Just like a kind of like a current, I And mean, going, oh, yeah, that's great. We're going to be able to kind of let sail with that. And that's how we started, right? That was enough as a catalyst to get us started. But we always knew from, the, from our inception that the problem was bigger, right? It, it touched on not just compliance, but also security, but also this kind of whole notion of, of value creation right? Finding that good stuff that is going to drive my analytics and drive my uh, other kind of business operations, how I make money in a digital enterprise. But the telling of that story in the early days, not only did we have the benefit of these regulations, so it wasn't like people were sending aside dollars to spend on products already. But at the end of the day, if you go to a a stakeholder, even a board, right, and ask them something as simple, are you worried about your data getting stolen? I don't think a board member could say no, right? I think they would probably be run off that board, right? I don't think a CEO could say, "Ah, you know what? It's not my data, so what do I care?" Everybody cares about the data that they're essentially custodians of, right? Their customer data, their employee data, their partners' data. So I think that the days of trying to be an evangelist are gone. Now we obviously have a proposition around a kind of tool. And in the early days, like 2019, we were yelling at the wind and you need to do it differently. You need to reimagine, rethink whatever Apple talked about in the 80s. We were doing that. I think the market has grown. Now I would say Microsoft is also evangelizing this. Just today, Palo Alto bought a much smaller competitor of ours. I think they were about two or three million in revenue, but Palo Alto now has drunken the Kool-Aid. So I do think that We are not alone yelling into the wind anymore. I think people are going to get this message, whether they're security practitioners, clients and risk practitioners, privacy professionals, or even people whose job it is to build value from the data that they collect on their customers and then partners.
2: Yeah, that's such an interesting thing in the entrepreneurial journey is that timing that sort of you You take a bet based on a change that you can see coming based on your collection of experiences. But the reality is that's like a, a well-informed bet. You just you don't know if it hadn't been a certain mix of things that happened and you had to wait out a 10-year gap on that instead of a six. I think that's the mystery of the entrepreneurial gamble is like, how good am I at sensing the future moves with an actual time frame? And a lot of people fall into that. I know I have that shit, that thing that I did 10 years ago would have been right now, but I ran out of cash waiting.
0: Look, I have, this is my third company. So I have some stories along that. My last company was an API security company. And we started in 2003. And honestly, people couldn't sell API. And and I'm not sure if all of your audience even knows what an API is, but it's an application programmatic interface. And it's really about how do you let applications talk to one another programmatically, right? Where you don't have to have a, a person in the middle, right? Similar to the way I was talking about looking at the data. You don't want to have a person with glasses going, oh, you know what, I don't have the right, I don't have the right prescription to be able to understand the data. That's the wrong way to do it, but that's the way it was done. And in a similar way, people would talk to an application, they would then get a form or a document and then they would send it to another application. And that kind of man in the middle or monkey in the middle of you, if you want to be more generous, obviously can't scale. So we believe that, okay, you're going to need a way for systems to talk to systems directly. And we were kind of at the end and we said, oh my God, we got the idea if you're going to be doing this, but then you need to introduce doors. What if I don't want everything to go? I want to create filters. What if like some of this information is proprietary, like personal data? And so we said, okay, you're going to need like a router firewall to be able to control that flow of information. That was the thesis, fantastic thesis, Proved completely correct. Today, that is how we talk to our mobile apps. That is how we talk to the cloud. That is how applications in the cloud talk to one another. But boy, do we miss the timing of it. We were basically wandering the kind of biblical desert, right? I forget the character in the Old Testament. Just wandering around. I guess that was Moses, that character, very important character. Very big part of the Old Testament. And yeah, we were just early. And it really didn't change for us until... Apple came out with the iPhone, I think, then they opened up, if you remember, and again, I don't know how you look like a very young man, but so I don't know if you remember, you're probably born right around the time the Apple phone came out. But then they opened it up to apps and those are like little applications that sit on your device and they need to talk to things that sit elsewhere. So people go, oh my God, light bulb. And then Amazon came out with web services another, a little bit more of an antiquated term for APIs. And so all of a sudden. We went from literally one again, Old Testament person preaching and talking about this or that, to by 2009, 2010, people got it, right? It was still early days, but they got it. And I think that proverb, again, I don't want to overuse the kind of metaphors around that proverb is, I think, important for anybody starting a business. Timing does matter. I think timing like execution, right? You can have a thesis, but as Wayne Gretzky said, you need to be able to go not only know where the puck is going, but you actually need to know how to skate to the puck, right? It's not enough to know that it's going into the corner. You to actually have the talent to skate to it before before the opposing team. And so look, you've got to have that combination. Big idea was better, but still obviously early. So that timing is always a hard thing to do. And candidly, it's that kind of balance of timing and execution to get that scale. That is business in a nutshell, right? That is what we're all, everyone listening to your podcast is here to learn. And and all of us aren't probably practitioners of in our own small way.
2: And so I, I've noticed that you're a pretty prolific angel investor, at least based on LinkedIn. There's all kinds of companies you're you know involved in. What are, is that, certainly that's one of the lessons like you're paying attention to as an advisor. And you've done this three times. You've had some exits. You've obviously had successes. Like, what is that story now? Like Dimitri, the angel investor advisor. Like I can picture you holding court over some entrepreneur meetings with a bunch of metaphors and you know, you're got this whole like Oracle from Miami thing going on. I, I just I want to know the story here.
0: Yeah, look, I yeah, that's
2: some raid related
0: look. What I will say is a angels obviously do these things, but to some degree, like angels, they do it out of the decency of their heart because Fortunately, for angels, you don't need money in, in heaven. At least that's what I'm told. Not religious, but that's what I'm told. Because it's not necessarily a great way to get rich. It's a fantastic way to be involved with younger entrepreneurs. It's sometimes fun. It's been less fun probably in the last couple of years, just with the economy the way it is. But it's entertainment as much as anything else, to be very candid. I think there are a few, we all love to hear the stories about the angels that invested in Uber or invested in Pinterest or Facebook. But The reality is historically pre-COVID, a lot of them were on the inside, right? Small groups that got to see the best deals, the, the pick of the litter, so to speak, in a very small community in Silicon Valley. Today as everything's become more diffused post-COVID, people spread out around the world, the center of gravity or the center of the universe is no longer Silicon Valley. I think it's a hard thing to do. Great entertainment, some successes, right? Successes are, are a huge amount of fun, lots of missed opportunities. There's another deal that Palo Alto is going to be announcing in a couple of weeks that I had a chance to invest. I didn't invest, and that was too expensive or something else. And obviously, painful when those happen. There's a lot of patient waiting, right? These things don't flower. In, in a year or in most cases, two years or three years, I think the average company takes seven to 10 years to get some kind of closure. And sometimes that closure is failing. So, but look, it's fun. I probably slowed it a little bit, but yes, I have probably a little bit over 20 investments currently uh, with another kind of probably five or six funds that I've invested in. It's a great way to lose money. But I guess if you're going to lose money on the stock market
2: or lose it this way, Pick your poison i think fortunately for me i lose it both ways i love that i've never heard somebody call it edutainment but i i completely understand that you in fact do you can have the sort of the fun of being involved in the sort of staying with the young scrappy entrepreneurs and you have you're gonna learn something from every experience and i think like that sort of is a very well-rounded personal thesis there like i Kind of just knowing you for 20 minutes, I feel like that kind of speaks to your character. You you seem like that guy. I think there's a certain realistic, you know, reality to this,
0: right? And I think at the end of the day, we all want to win the mega millions lottery, right? The 1.8 billion. We know that the number of Ubers that get created any particular period is small, right? And candidly, there hasn't been one in a while. What's interesting, I think, over the last, certainly during COVID, Company creation exploded it. And not just in Silicon Valley, which had the lion's share, but everywhere. VCs could fund without going in face-to-face meetings. The old kind of, you used to have this kind of old adage, VCs wanted to be within two hours drive of the company and they wouldn't invest with, unless they were within that kind of radius. What does that mean during COVID, right? When everyone's at home, you're not driving two hours, you're not driving at all. You're, everything just exploded. So people are getting funded in every corner of the world. And people were getting funded with that meeting just over on Zoom. And so I do think we're in this kind of period where there is an incredible number of companies that are being funded over the last kind of two, three years. To some degree, there's a glut and they have to get digested. They have to die. They have to. And so look, we're going through a kind of Cambrian explosion, right? These kind of epochal periods or end of epochs, right? That you, I think we've got five or six of them in history where you have this kind of explosion of life, and then a meteorite comes and blows it all up. like a small percentage of them to survive. So I think we're about to, we're already sliding into that. But like I said, look, it's fantastic to get to be part of it. I was talking to one company I invested in the UK, they have an offer. Nothing I would say to write all about, but they have one. And it's great to talk through with them, how they're thinking about it, along with some of their other options. So I think, look, but I do think it's important to highlight that it's entertainment. If one of these companies succeed, and obviously I hope they all do, And I have like several that are on paper unicorns, but it's on paper, right? As soon as that paper gets converted into currency, I'll be much happier. And I'm sure they'll be much happier. But right now
2: I I have to settle for the paper. So I got to know you have this collection of broad activities and experiences. You speak in all kinds of metaphors. You're obviously well-read. I'm going to guess you like history the way you talk about it. It's just like... What could you summarize in a few minutes of that whole journey? Like just the, what made Dimitri today versus if you could send a handwritten note back to yourself 25 years ago, like that space in between is always real interesting to me in that entrepreneur. Yeah, look, I journey. think, again, if you go back in time far enough, you
0: may be familiar with a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And it's really, you know, I think there are another book, which, by the way, I haven't read any of book, books, so nothing will warn me more than reading a business book. But there was another one around what you're finding the true north or some ridiculous kind of coaching metaphor. The one, and look, you probably don't need, you could probably just read the headline or the title and kind of get everything. Now I have AI that can
2: just give me one paragraph about it. Yeah, good.
0: giving me Nicole's notes. So look, I think at the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself. I'm not, so my background is actually a little bit unusual in the sense that I grew up in a place called Winnipeg with people that follow hockey may know it from the Jets, people that don't follow hockey. It's a miserable, terrible place in the middle of nowhere. Where North Dakota was looked upon as, oh, that's, a, that's an exciting uh, place, like nine hours south. And, and look, obviously, this is before the technology industry emerged in the, at the same scale and level as it is today. And my dream was to be a physicist. So I was not thinking about uh, being a tech entrepreneur in any path. And I did pursue it. I did graduate studies in physics. And then I just realized, you know what? I The pace of it, the deliberateness, right? Working on one paper for two years. Working in a basement all the time, and not being able to afford clothes. It didn't seem, it didn't seem like a good to me. And it was just, it just happened to me at the kind of the tech industry. Like I think the Mozilla browser came out. I said, hey, that looks a lot more interesting. Why don't I pivot and go to that? But I do think we all, and by the way, I didn't code. I could pick up the language of technology pretty quickly, but I've never been a coder. I wasn't a salesperson. The closest I was to sales was working at my parents' jewelry store selling poor, nervous guys, a wedding band or, or an engagement ring. So you pick up what you need to pick up, right? I think being adaptable is important and being thoughtful. Look, I am like, I do read a lot of history. I read a lot period, but I do think that there is no one path, right? You don't have to be that athlete because God knows I was not that athlete. You don't have to be that exceptional genius at coding. You don't have to be that person that just rolled out of Stanford with 15 patents. Because they ran AI and they ran a department, there are many paths to get to where you were, But what it does take is some splunk that that stick to it. You obviously get better. I think you, this is a, even though we deal in technology, this is an interpersonal game, right? I think you need to be decent to your employees and your customers. Maybe make them laugh on occasion. So I don't. I think at the end of the day. What I would say for me is there wasn't like a clear, oh, hey, he did all of these things as a buildup, right? There's this kind of natural stair step. I think to some degree, I pivoted when I would need to be pivoted, just like in terms of identifying an idea. I think there's always an attempt to be decent, realizing this is not blood sport, that it is entertainment, whether it's angel investing or whatever. It's an occupation, right? I do this because It seems like the best of a bunch of bad choices, right? What I could work somewhere else, but this seems pretty decent. I'm in Miami. I get to hang out outside. And I do think that, I think obviously striving and working hard are all important, but to some degree, I think you need to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves and not be afraid to go down that path. And it does take some commitment. It's obviously hugely risky and it's easier to take risks when you're 29 than it is when you're 59. I'm not 59, just to be clear for the audience. But it is, right? So anyway, so I think if there's one one adage I would leave is be thoughtful, be decent,
2: and don't be afraid to take a risk. He's definitely 39 for those who are not watching the video. Yeah. I
1: was going to say I'm like
2: 29 and a half. Now. <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I resonate because I've not been the one that ever made the like plan with the third step. And I talk to people like that every day that we, we do the interviews. And it's, I knew from like minute one out of college that I was going to set up my dominoes and I was going to do it this way. And by this age, I was going to be this thing. I could personally say I completely failed out of every even tiny little objective that I had set for myself. And so I just stopped setting them and started paying attention to, you know I, I don't know, what does it look like when people are making money and having a decent time in their life? And let me just go talk to them. Yeah, look, obviously,
0: look, you couldn't have been thinking I'm going to be a podcaster before podcasting was invented, right? Back in the days when we still went before the mobile phones were around. So look, I do think that we're all going to be presented. And I have a couple of boys and I talked to them about AI, right? Maybe coming full circle to where we started. I'm talking about Brian being your AI. AI to me feels like a major inflection. Now there's going to be a lot of wasted money, including some for me in terms of angel investments. Not everything is going to be successful. You're going to have so much experimentation. It's like the early days of the trains, right? There was like, I don't know, hundreds of private train companies. There obviously isn't today and there will be a shakeout. but it does seem where there's an, a new, new thing that is going to change the game. And obviously we're taking advantage of, from a data standpoint, when I tell my boys and I do tell them like, what this industry that I'm in, this tech industry, can't be beat. I get to work from home. I travel around to exotic places. I get to talk on podcasts like yours, but there is an opportunity, a window. And if you can get on that kind of tailwind that I talked about, there is a current in the ocean. And I think AI is definitely going to be something that propels the industry for the next 15, 15 or so years.
2: Yeah. It's a nice segue because first of all, I I am also the parent of two boys and three girls. I think about this all the time. Like y'all, Pay attention to the like, you don't get to see once in a lifetime pivots and shifts in, in this way. And maybe it's not, maybe it's once a generation because it's the same way i talk. Y'all get to carry around a little glowing piece of glass in your pocket with all the information in the whole world. When we didn't know things. We just were dumb. We didn't know that <laughs> you didn't get to ask. It's a, a library,
0: open up an encyclopedia,
2: <laughs> right? Right, exactly. But it was out of date because those are expensive. And God help you, you just didn't know. I don't know. I just asked somebody who might know, <laughs> or I didn't know the answer. And there's that, and they go, Oh, that's weird. And I just bought the new VR headset. I'm just like, This do you understand that you can strap your head into a totally different high-deck well, universe? Can teleport. And like, you can teleport, can you imagine you could teleport. I just got lost in the thing last night playing games and i'm like this is bizarre like getting one of my amazing stuff and then obviously the ai is just like outrageous like the explosion of like actual tactical usefulness like i use this thing every day that didn't exist 10 years ago or 10 months ago and i love that And, and then i like i told you at the beginning i i love to ask people like okay what must be on everyone's radar who's listening to this like to add to their sort of Don't miss this. And I think it's like the unique perspective that you bring from your experiences, from the, the whole collection of all the things. And then in the right now, the inflection point of AI, how do you see that? What will you tell the business Look, I think obviously you need to dive in head first. We, we obviously talk to
0: companies that could tell you that a lot of the enterprise companies we're doing are they're experimenting. They're doing things right now. I would still say that they're kind of toy experiments. I will differ with you for in one area. I actually think the frequency of this, these kind of dislocations faster and faster, right? I think the, before the internet, there was client server, before client server, there was, I forget, like a mini server or something like, I don't know. It was before my time for that. There was mainframe compute shed storage. And since then we've seen like the internet, there was uh, kind of e-commerce and there was cloud. Then there is mobile recently there was crypto we all remember especially here in miami you can go out without having somebody in their in their ferrari or what's like the car with the bull and they all love Bugatti. I yeah one of, one of those yeah <laughs> and but i think ai it, look it's hard to imagine that you're gonna be able to do anything without it right i think this idea of having people look at stuff and make decisions just seems quaint whether it's by looking at data even the volume that's getting created whether it's uh, trying to look at like a sonogram of a baby, or maybe radiological image. I think it's just, look, it's gonna be everywhere. It's gonna be pervasive. No, I do think there'll be other revolutions. We've had others around material sciences and so forth. Maybe superconductivity finally happens.
2: Quantum or, or fusion, there's a lot of stuff that'll. Support.
0: People are doing work. I think you know we're probably at the advent of commercial fusions, and I think some of these things go quickly. I think EVs surprisingly went relatively quickly, even though you had one company. Now it's all EVs, right? I, I went from never having any EVs to we have one gas-powered car left. But I do think it's important for people to get familiar with it. And one thing I'll say is you don't have to be a, a just a scientist to make sense of it. I think people like like me and maybe you who are, we can read about stuff. We could make sense of things. It's not just limited to this kind of priesthood of developers. I think you could be involved in that business without being an expert on large language models or vector databases or transformers. And I do think that whether this, you embrace that, or maybe you embrace some kind of new way, just like the vaccine we just experienced was a new way of kind of building vaccine. The, one of the co-founders got a Nobel Prize this year, physiology. And you think that kind of looking for these opportunities, these kind of dislocations, disruptions, these changes is important and committing, right? Jumping lot, taking a risk. And I think that's, that's the part, as I highlighted before. So to all five of you, and who knows, maybe that dislocation is TikTok. So there's always that too.
2: I definitely feel dislocated when I look at TikTok. I'm not sure. that you I don't work. think I'm going to under. You and I both. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Dimitri, this- this is a blast. You're hilarious. And mm-hmm. I can sense the wisdom and I, I love it. Thanks for coming out. But anybody that's, you know, kind of resonating or wants to learn more about you or the company, what channels that you on and how do they find you? I'm on all the digital channels except for TikTok. And they could
0: email me at BigID. They could email me at at which is my personal account. So
2: feel free. And as the, a famous Vancouverite, where I used to live once said, call me maybe. Dimitri,
1: thanks so much for hanging out. Really appreciate
2: it. Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.